a very good morning to you. Grab your donuts, grab your coffee, grab your seat. Uh, my name's Neil, I'm married to the wonderful Kate. If we've not met before, it's great to see you here this morning. If you are new or visiting, you're very, very welcome. Do go and chat to the guys at the back by the welcome desk. Uh, we'd love to welcome you and connect you. We'd love to connect you to, to the body of Christ, really, whether that's here or somewhere else, it doesn't really matter. We just want to connect you to the body of Christ. As Kate said, you probably know we're in the season of Lent, and Lent is the, the 40 days leading up to the events of Easter week, and it's a time, really, that gives us an opportunity to, uh, to pause, and we reflect on Jesus' time, actually, in the wilderness, and it's an opportunity for us to be intentional, to carve out some time and some space from our busy schedules, and really just to remember, to focus, and to fix our eyes and our attention on the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And so over the next few Sundays, as Kate was saying, in the run-up to Easter, we're going to take some time. Uh, we're going to consider uh, the cross this week. Uh, next week, we'll reflect on a little bit more in, uh, on the gospel, and then... Um, in the weeks just up to Easter, we'll be uh, looking at the meaning of the resurrection. Uh, but in the meantime, if you've got a Bible, why don't you turn me to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 18. The words should come up uh, on the screen. This is 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse, uh, starting in verse 18. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of, of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. And let's just pray. Father, we thank you for the scriptures. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence with us, and we ask that by your presence, you would uh, reveal to us more of your precious son, Jesus. You would open up the scriptures to us. You would touch and transform our lives. We ask this in the name of your son. Amen. Uh, Corinth, as you uh, probably know, Corinth was a thriving city. Just a bit of background. Uh, a thriving city in Greece. It was one of the kind of dominant commercial, cultural, political centers. It, it had been um, uh, one of those centers in the Mediterranean world since sort of before the um, 8th century BC. So it was kind of established. It was characterized by a typical uh, Greek 
uh, culture, the people there were obsessed with uh, philosophy, they're obsessed with knowledge, they're obsessed with learning and uh, wisdom. It had, um, it had at least 12 different temples that was set up and established for all sorts of different gods. The Jews had established a synagogue there. And like many of the large commercial cities, Corinth was like this hotbed of sexual immorality. Like there was a lot of dodgy stuff going on in Corinth. In, in Greek, there's, there's a word which means to Corinthianize, and basically that word, to Corinthianize in the Greek, meant basically just lots of illicit sexual immorality. Such was the reputation of this city. And so by the time the gospel reaches Corinth, which is around 52 AD, there's this context. The church is being established into this cultural context of um, philosophical, religious, and uh, quite a bit of unsavory stuff is going on in and around the culture that the church is being established into. And what's happening is a lot of that cultural stuff is seeping into and has found its way into this new church that's been planted in Corinth there. And so that's why uh, Paul is writing this letter to them, because what he's trying to do is trying to help these new uh, believers. Um, he's trying to point them in a slightly more helpful and a slightly more godly direction. He's trying to kind of steer them back uh, on track. And as we dig into this text this morning, one of the things that I want us to keep in mind here, we've got to just keep this in the back of our heads, is that Paul is writing here to the church. Paul is writing to believers. He is talking to followers of Jesus who are getting sucked back into the culture um, of the, the world that's going on around them. And in these words... In these verses, in, the, in this text, Paul's basically challenged them, challenging them about the things, the world in which they find themselves, values and uh, thinks. And he, he starts and he kicks off by comparing and contrasting the so-called wisdom of the age with what he calls the, the foolishness of God. And, and in this, these early chapters of 1 Corinthians, uh, he gives these different examples uh, between worldly wisdom on the one hand, and God's apparent foolishness on the other. And the first that we're going to look at today is the cross. Uh, another one that he touches on is the church. Another one is that he talks about preaching. But basically, through each one of those examples, what he's basically saying is, look, here's the world's wisdom. Here's how the world, the world thinks. This is how and what the world values. This is how the world around you is defining success, but... This is what God thinks. This is what God calls wisdom. This is how God operates. This is what God calls and defines as being success. And, and what he's kind of pointing out is this, this, um, this gap that exists between what the world calls wisdom and what God calls wisdom. This gap is so wide, it's so deep, it's so vast that what happens is that actually God's wisdom begins to us to look like utter foolishness. The difference is so great. We're going to look at the first of those three things this morning, the cross, as Paul compares and contrasts the world's take on the message of the cross and contrasts that with God's perspective. Have a look at verse 18. For the message of the cross 
is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And here what you've got is you've got Paul speaking into all the received wisdom of Corinth. This is a city known all over the world for its intellectualism, its culture, its education. It's this progressive, like hip, trendy, up-and-coming city. And there are all these super intellectuals knocking around Corinth. And they're, they're standing up and they're holding court and they're waxing lyrical on the latest philosophical thoughts and trends of the day. And they're wowing the crowds. This is like... Um, they're the like, celebrities of the day. This is like uh, uh, better than TV. You know, just, people would flock and go and see them. They're wowing the crowds with their eloquence and their rhetoric. Uh, and Paul comes into that and he's cutting across all their sophistry, which is technically what that whole thing is. And he delivers this stark, contrasting message. And the message that he delivers is that an executed criminal at like the back end of the empire, from an utterly despised race in a conquered nation, was crucified by the Romans on what was effectively a rubbish heap outside Jerusalem. And that this person died this barbaric, humiliating death. It was a death that was reserved solely for rebels and slaves. It was so ignominious that a Roman citizen, it was illegal for a Roman citizen to be crucified. And then as if that weren't enough, and that weren't crazy enough, the message is that three days later, God raises this Jesus from the dead. And now this same crucified peasant criminal from the back end of nowhere is now the king of the universe. You can see why this all sounds pretty foolish to some people. And he goes on and he's saying, what may indeed sound foolish to those who are perishing, actually to those of us who are being saved, this crazy story, this strange narrative is actually nothing less than the power of God. He goes on in verse 19 and 20 and he says, for it's written, he says, I will destroy, this is from Isaiah, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, the intelligence of the intelligent, I will frustrate. He goes on, where is the wise person? Where is the teacher of the law? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? And for Paul, everything that Paul says um, is based on scripture. The scriptures for Paul are his authority. And when, we're, when we say scripture, when we're talking about Paul here, we have to remember that that means the Old Testament. The New Testament, the Gospels didn't exist. They're kind of being written at this point. So when he's referring back to the authority that he stands upon, he's talking about what we call the Old Testament. And um, for Paul, the scriptures are authority for him, not the other way around. This is why he quotes Isaiah chapter 29. And we shouldn't misunderstand what Paul's saying here. He's not arguing um, some kind of anti-intellectualism. Paul is this fierce intellectual. This this stuff that we're looking into, this is Paul writing in in Greek rhetoric. Some of the language in these these verses, in these early chapters of 1 Corinthians, is some of the thickest, if you like, of of Paul's pretty complex style. Um, But Paul is absolutely this man of God. He's absolutely loves God with his mind. He's absolutely, at the same time, a man who loves the scriptures. And what Paul's doing here is he's actually having a go at um, a sort of arrogant, godless intellectualism, 
where people are kind of putting themselves and pitching themselves and standing up against and using their so-called wisdom and intellectual rigor to bring down God. And Paul says, you know, that kind of intellectualism, that kind of arrogant so-called wisdom, God will destroy, God will frustrate. And what he's saying is that God has embarrassed all of the brilliant, smart intellectuals. You know, these people who are effectively the celebrities of the day and the people who are at odds with God's truth. And then he goes on in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. And for Paul, it's self-evident that um, humanity, uh, we are unable to come to a full knowledge of God by ourselves. We just can't get to God for all of our brilliance, for all of our science, for all of our technology, for all of our philosophy and psychology and anthropology and academics, our ingenuity, all of it, which is advanced now. Um, as humans, in spite of all of that rigor, we are still unable to come to the knowledge of God by ourselves. And, and like, that's pretty humbling for our 21st century mindset. We sit there and go, oh, I'm rather brilliant. So it offends our minds. But according to Paul, we're like blind, deaf people groping around in the dark, searching for God. And that's humbling because what that means is that um, if we're going to find God, we need what the Bible calls revelation. We need something from the outside. And revelation describes that moment where God shows himself to people. And that's exactly who Jesus is. You know, the Bible teaches that the two greatest acts of God's self-revelation are Jesus and the cross. Uh, without Jesus and without the cross, we would have no clue about who God is and what God is like. You know, keep in mind that God, and, and when I say God in this point, I'm not talking about the God of the Bible. I'm talking about like God as in this, this modern English vernacular. You know, God is this concept God is, is a word that so many people use just to describe the idea that out there somewhere, I hope, perhaps, maybe, there's this divine supreme being. I, I, I don't know. Jesus, by contrast, Jesus is a, is a person. Jesus takes the idea that God is out there somewhere and he walks into our lives and he steps into our lives here and says, Hi. My name's Jesus. Shall we chat? Jesus puts a face uh, to God. In and through the person of Jesus, God steps into humanity, the incarnation, fully human, fully divine. Jesus makes the seemingly invisible God uh, visible, tangible, um, flesh and blood, something that we can grasp. Jesus makes the, the seemingly far-off, distant God close and near, personal and, and touchable. Jesus makes the, the seemingly silent, quiet God audible. Jesus comes in uh, to the world and he preaches and he teaches and he demonstrates the kingdom. And he's basically in and through his preaching and his teaching and his demonstration of the kingdom, he's saying, this is what God is like. This is who God is. This is what God says. This is what God does. Jesus brings God 
near. He brings God into the room. He says, God is here. That, this is what God is like. And without Jesus, we would literally be groping and searching for God in the dark. And that's effectively what religion is. You know, religion is, is basically humankind's search and quest for God, to find God. The gospel, on the other hand, is God's search for humankind. You know, religion is us trying to get to God with all of our brains and our intellect, and we're just like working away, we're sweating and we're striving, desperately trying to keep all of the rules, desperately trying to get to God. And meanwhile, the gospel is God coming for us, God searching for us, God looking for us. The, the gospel is God making his way to mankind in and through the person of Jesus. It's kind of madness. And we know that um, what Paul's saying here is that um, religion can't get us to God. Religion doesn't get us to God. Philosophy doesn't get us to God. Science, technology, academia, for all their strengths, they don't lead us into a personal relationship with the living God that is transformational and brings in and ushers in the fullness of all we've been called to be. We need revelation. We need the person of Jesus. We need the foolishness of the cross. Jesus is the one and only way for us to know God. And that, you know, that's a humbling thought. It's another humbling thought. That's another statement that now challenges our um, sensibilities and our arrogance and our pride. It's like, that's a bold statement. And yet, at the same time, it's both the beauty and the foolishness of the gospel. C.S. Lewis, writing in The Case for Christianity, he puts it like this. He says, reality is always something you could never have guessed. That's one of the reasons, one of the many reasons I believe in Christianity, because it's a religion you could not have guessed. And it's, tr it's true. I mean, that's the truth. You, could, you couldn't make this stuff up. I mean, it's crazy. It's bananas. You know, if you're going to make up some story about God's plan of salvation, you would come up with a much better story than this one. No one in their right mind makes up stuff like this. Do you have any idea? We're sort of desensitized to it, but do you have any idea how countercultural, how subversive the message of the cross of Christ is? Who comes up with a crucified, dead Messiah? Who says that because of his great love, God comes down to us rather than the other way around? That doesn't make any sense. Who says, whose idea is it that the God of the universe comes to us in poverty and humility and becomes like this random rabbi wandering around the, some backwater on the backside of nowhere and whose life ends up unspectacularly in a death, and not only a death, a, like a humiliating death. No one makes this stuff up. And even if they did, no one with half a brain cell would get on board with any of it. It's just crazy. And yet, uh, here we all are, 2,000 years later, living our lives in and through that very narrative. 
That is the foolishness of the cross. And then Paul goes on in verse 22. The Jews demand signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. It's a stumbling block to Jews. Yeah, you bet. And foolishness to the Gentiles. Yes, no surprise. And what he's doing here is Paul's breaking the world down. He's dividing the world down into the kind of two groups, which is reflective and indicative of the world of his day. You've got the Jews on the one hand and the Greeks on the other. Bearing in mind that um, Corinth at the time would have been mostly populated by Roman citizens, Greeks in Paul's day what he's, it's just a way of saying cultured, educated, um, sophisticated, wise, intelligent, everything marvelous. And Paul is saying, look, you've got the Jews and you've got the Greeks. Uh, when it comes to the Messiah, the Jews, they're after, like, they're after miracles. They're after the miraculous. And they're not just asking for miracles. They're demanding, you know, they demand they're demanding a showstopper as evidence and proof. And you just need to read the Gospels, the story of Jesus, and you're constantly seeing the Jews demanding a sign. And uh, in Matthew 16, there's this great encounter that Jesus has with them. The Pharisees are asking Jesus uh, to perform some more magic tricks. And, um, and it's not because they're trying to find out if he's actually kosher. It's actually so that they can trick him, of course. And Jesus' response in Matthew 16 is pretty sh- swift and sharp and, um, and direct. I like verse 4. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation look for a sign. That's you. Um, But none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. And Jesus then left them and walked away. Um, Everyone knows when he says that. They all know the story of Jonah. They all know that Jonah was in the belly of the fish for three days. And so Jesus is talking about what? He's talking about his death and his resurrection. Okay, so what he's saying here is he's saying, look, my resurrection is is evidence enough. The resurrection is proof enough. All you need is the resurrection. You know, and just as an aside, sometimes it's important for us to just remind ourselves of the fact that, you know, the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, these are actual historical facts. Um, all of ancient history is, is based on witnesses. And, you know, the more witnesses that there, there are, the more accurate and reliable we can say the history is. And the resurrection of Jesus, these things, these are as factual and as historical as things like um, the assassination of Julius Caesar and the burning of Rome. Uh, now, that may be, but our faith is not in the historicity of the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. You know, they're just facts. It's just useful to know that they're facts. But our faith is on and in what those events mean. What's the meaning of those events? Our faith is in the idea and the belief that Jesus' death, unlike billions of others before him and after him, that his death actually means something. Our, our, our faith is in, in the resurrection is that the resurrection actually means something for every single one of us when it comes to how we connect and reconnect with the living God from whom we've been separated by sin. And Jesus is basically saying to the Jews, he says, look, listen, guys, do you know what? It's, it's enough. My resurrection is enough. And then he just gets up and he walks off and leaves them hanging. You know, so here's the Jews, they're demanding miraculous signs, and Jesus is saying, do you know what, it's not happening, I'm just going to walk off, just wait for the resurrection, that, then it will all make sense. And so the Jews, just like many of us, we're wanting signs, we're wanting evidence so that we can have faith. But 
we have to remember that the opposite of faith isn't doubt. The opposite of faith is sight. And the one thing that Jesus is asking of his followers is that they have faith for people to trust in the invisible. And so demanding a sign means that we would see it and therefore we wouldn't need any faith. That's the Jews. Meanwhile, the Greeks are after wisdom. You know, the Greeks are after this God who makes sense, who, a God who fits with their expectations, a God who sits alongside their human morality and, and human opinion and human judgments, a God who shows up and fits in and, and really is in line with everything that I believe and know to be true because I'm so supersonically intelligent. And quite simply, Jesus is just not like that. The cross is not like that. Jesus is a Messiah who died on a cross. And we have become, over the years, you know, we've got the crucifix and crosses on our, in our ears and around our necks and at the front of our stages and all over the place. And we have become, over time, completely numbed to the provocative, shocking, repulsive idea of a crucified Christ. In Paul's day, this was just scandalous. A crucified Messiah is an oxymoron. It just doesn't make sense. Look, you can have a cross. Yes, there were lots of them. Lots and lots of people were crucified. So the cross is just not an unfamiliar sight in the first century. Um, you can have a Messiah, right? There were also lots of those. There were also lots of Messiahs knocking around saying, follow me, right? So you could have a cross, you could have a Messiah, that's fine. What you can't have is a Messiah crucified on a cross. That makes absolutely no sense whatsoever. And Paul says, well, that's what we're preaching. It makes no sense at all. Uh, he says, we preach a crucified Messiah, and yep, that's going to be a stumbling block to the Jews. And yeah, that's going to be foolishness to the Greeks. But we're going to keep on doing it. You know, for the Jews, remember the Jews are looking for a Messiah marked by power. The Jews are looking for this nationalistic, victorious, strong king who's going to lead the armies of Israel to victory against the Roman oppressors. They wanted power. They weren't looking for some small town rabbi who said, love your enemies. They wanted to kill all their flipping enemies. They don't what's this nonsense. Like, this isn't what I had in mind for my Messiah. They're not looking for somebody who ends up getting crucified by the Romans. It's not, like, exactly what we had in mind. You know, rebels, slaves, murderers, they were crucified, not Messiahs. And so the stumbling block is, is it, it, the, the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. And it's just foolishness, just insane for the Gentiles. It's just the, the Greeks using their minds. It's like, none of this makes any sense, I'm sorry. You know, the cross was scandalous. It was offensive. And the reality is that even for many of us sat in this room this morning, the message of the cross is still scandalous. It's still offensive. There are parts of this that are stumbling blocks to us. And there are parts of this that are just foolishness. You know, there are things in the gospel that increasingly offend our mind and sensibilities, sort of like the idea that we're sinners. You notice how we become increasingly uncomfortable with the word sin? Let's modify that somehow. Um, and actually, that we're deserving of God's wrath, wrath and judgment. Oh, I don't like the sound of that. That's a bit offensive. That's a bit of a stumbling block. Um, 
and that people who don't follow Jesus are going to hell? Oh, God, now we're just getting really uncomfortable. Uh, now uh, you're telling me that I need to be saved, and I'm going to be saved not by my own merit or value or works. I'm just going to be saved simply by God's grace and by faith. There's things about the message of the cross. There are lots of things about the gospel that offend our hearts and minds and sensibilities um, as followers of Jesus. Remember, Paul's writing to the church here. Um, And especially if we find ourselves in a position whereby we're trying to shape and mold God into our own image, which is a very popular trend these days. Many of these ideas are just as offensive to us today as a crucified Messiah was to the Jews and the Gentiles. The gospel is a stumbling block to the Jews. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. You, you know, you think that an executed criminal put to death on a cross 2,000 years ago on the rubbish heap outside of Jerusalem, you think he's the king of like, the universe? Uh, you think that this messed up world is all going to be made new on his return? Uh, what have you been drinking? Um, You seriously think that Jesus is coming back to judge the living and the dead and he's going to usher in this thing called his kingdom? You know, you're out of your mind. The message of the cross is a stumbling block. It's offensive. It's foolishness. Paul's not done. And so neither am I. Verse 24, uh, but to those whom God has called. And when he says that in verse 24, but to those whom God has called, just bear in mind that that means all of us, okay? So wherever you are right now with Jesus, um, recognize that God is pursuing. He is in hot pursuit. Remember, that's the message of the gospel. He is coming after you. He is wanting you. He is pursuing you. He loves you. He is pursuing every single one of us right now, no matter where we are in our relationship to Jesus. He doesn't want any to perish, but wants all to come to repentance. But uh, that's an aside. Verse 24, but to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than human wisdom, and the weakness of God is stronger than human strength. Um, Paul is saying, listen up, people. Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is power. It's just a different kind of power to the power that you think that you want. You know, it's, it's just not empire building off the backs of the poor you know, through violence and control. It's just different. And then he says, you know, Jesus Christ, the Messiah, really is wisdom. It's just not human wisdom. It's, it's not eloquent, necessarily. It's not cultured. It's not fashionable. It's probably not even very palatable. It's truth. It's the ground beneath your feet. Jesus really is brilliant, ingenious wisdom, and at the same time, dynamic, life-transforming power. And, and Paul says that God, in the message of the cross, in and through the person of Jesus, he outsmarts and he outthinks and he outmaneuvers all of the scribes and all of the arrogance of the intellectual, all of the human wisdom that's swirling around. He's showing us what true power is and he's showing us what true wisdom is and it's all found in a crucified Messiah. And we are left literally just looking at the upside down reality, scratching our heads saying, like seriously, (laughs) my brain, I can't compute, I don't know what to do with any of this. And that's what God claims is the true story of the world. Um, Austrian philosopher and educator uh, Ivan Illich, he was asked towards the end of his life, um, what's the best way to, to, to change a society, to transform a society? And his answer was, if you want to change a society, you need to tell 
an alternative story. Uh, the cross of Christ is the alternative story. It doesn't get more alternative than the cross of Jesus Christ. You know, all of us, we're all trying to make sense of what's going on around us. And, and we do that through story, through these meta-narratives, you know, that, that exist, that help us understand and get a framework for what's going on. You know, the question isn't, do you believe in story? The question for all of us is, which story do you believe? You know, in Paul's day, the Jewish story, the meta-narrative for the Jews was all about God is about power, and he's coming back to overthrow the Romans. That was their meta-narrative. That was their story. For the Greeks, the story is that God is, is, is cultured and sophisticated. God is going to show up in style uh, someday. And there's a whole host of stories and narratives that many of us here in the church are buying into, to varying different degrees today, different versions of human wisdom and human strength. And materialism. You know, materialism has all become about amassing stuff, and it's about amassing stuff to bring me comfort and joy. And so money is power, and, and, and that's good. And money buys wisdom, or at least it buys the best and finest education. And so uh, my house, my home, my cars, my bank balance, these are the things that actually keep me up. These are the things that are my security. And if those things are looking good, then I'm fine. I'm, I'm okay. You know, and uh, whether we'd like to admit it or not, uh, for many of us, that's a story that we buy into, that we are buying into to some degree or another. Who wouldn't be happier with an extra 100,000 pounds in the bank? Or, you know, there's the story of pluralism. You know, well, yes, um, I, I think that there are, there are God, there's a God or, or gods maybe, but, um, you know, he, she, or it is just much more ambiguous, much more nebulous than people say. And, you know, pluralism is like, well, there are lots of paths up the same mountain, and who am I to kind of tell you which path you should take? And uh, wherever you're at, your spirituality, that's just between you and the divine, and it's only those flipping, nauseating, bigoted, Christians who say that Jesus is the only way to God and how dare they you know that's a story and many people live by faith in that story or at least in parts of that story a more recent story that's gaining a whole load of traction over the last few years um, especially among the younger generation uh, is a thing called moralistic therapeutic deism uh, and it's often veiled as Christianity you see it in churches all over the place uh, and it's this idea that God exists, yeah, but that he exists solely for you. Uh, and that he is not the center of the universe, but you are. And uh, you are the one that he revolves around. And he really, really loves you. And he thinks that you are amazing all the time. Like today, he's like so happy that you've shown up for church. He now owes you one. And so... Um, God in moralistic therapeutic days is more like a sort of heavenly concierge service. You know, he exists just for you, and it's like he, he, he's there to ask you, how can I help you? He's sort of like an upgraded version of Siri. 
you know, if you need anything, I won't interfere, but like, I'm just in heaven, but it's like, I can get back quickly. Just let me know what you need, when you need it, and I'll be there. There's a song coming on. Um, he sort of says, pick and choose which bits of the Bible you like, you know, which bits of the Bible you find palatable, just ignore the bits that are just challenging. Uh, do whatever you can to just kind of live a moral life, that would be nice. Um, I don't want to get in your way at all, just do whatever makes you happy, you're all that matters, but if anything goes wrong, anything goes pear-shaped, I'm here for you if you need me. That's a story. And more of us than even would be willing to admit it, believe at least bits of that story. But the Bible also tells us a story. Okay, I'm going to finish. The Bible tells us an alternative story. It's the gospel. And we're going to look at that more next week. But the key to understanding the story of the Bible is the cross. That's the key. The cross is at the center of it all. That's what this whole thing revolves around. In the story of God, the real power, true wisdom are found in a crucified Messiah, And how different what Paul calls the foolishness of God, God's story is from all of the others. And this morning, uh, one of the questions we need to ask ourselves is, which story do we believe? Which story are we living by? Because we are all living in a story. The question is just which one? And again, I don't want to labor this, but I, we just need to remember that Paul is talking to believers here. He is talking to followers of Jesus here. He is talking to the church. He's talking to us. He's not preaching the gospel to people who don't know Jesus. He's writing to the church, and he is challenging a church who, that has become enamored by the so-called wisdom of the world. You know, where we bought into how the world thinks, how the world defines success, how the world says, you know, here's what makes sense, here's what's real. And he's saying these things are entirely different stories, entirely different narratives, and actually not compatible at all. How much of the world's wisdom, how much of what the world calls power are we believing in, are we living by you know, and it is a question that's as relevant for the church today as it was in the church in Corinth in the first century. To what extent, right here this morning, are we buying into, maybe not in its entirety, okay? Maybe not completely, but in part, two things like materialism. How much faith are we putting in our stuff, you know, of just getting more so that I can feel secure? If I only have this much, then I feel okay, then I can go and do that. You know, or pluralism, or, or, or relativism. You know, this idea that there's no absolute truth. You know, this is your truth, and, and that's your truth, and that's fine, and, 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 and that's okay, and that's enough, and who am I to challenge you on your truth? Or, um, or elitism, or tribalism, or liberalism, or modernism, or fundamentalism, or universalism. You know, surely there can't possibly be a hell. It's too difficult for me to grasp, and so rather than trying to grasp it, I'm just going to go, it's not true. Or secularism, or moral, moralistic therapeutic deism, or any other ism that you can conjure up. Fill in the blanks. How much are we buying into the wrong stories, the wrong narrative? The gospel 
is an alternative story about crucified Messiah. And, and God claims that real wisdom and real power are not to be found anywhere in the world's stories, but in the story of God, centered in and around the foolishness, the utter ridiculousness of the cross of Jesus Christ. And, and our response is, to, uh, is, is faith and trust in that story. You know, if you're here and you, you wouldn't say that you're, you believe in Jesus, you know, for you it would be about putting your faith and trust in his death and in his burial and his resurrection and, 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 and recognizing that those things mean something. You know, that we can be made right. We can be reconnected with the, the living, loving God, not by our own merit, not by our own works, not by us being a good person, not by just showing up to church, not just by writing checks to, for good causes, not just by serving our socks off and all the things that we might do, but actually just through humility and repentance. Repentance we, oh, doesn't sit well with us. Arrogance, that conceit is so great. The idea of repenting sticks in our throats. It's fundamental to entering into the story of God. This, this idea that we can humble ourselves and repent and change the story that we're, we've been living, change the direction of our lives, coming to God with nothing, with nothing but our poverty and our brokenness, which again offends our sensibilities and just saying, do you know what? I really need you to be saved um, from myself and from this world in which I live in. By putting our faith and trust in the work of Jesus on the cross, by putting our faith and our trust in the wisdom of God and the power of God. And, and for those of us who are here this morning who would call ourselves followers of Jesus, do you know what? It's exactly the same response. It's exactly the same response, faith and trust and repentance. All of it with a liberal sprinkling of humility. You know, faith that the cross of Christ is actually the true story of the world, and maybe I'd lost sight of that a little bit. You know, trust in the wisdom and the power of God, the wisdom of God that confounds my handle and take on things, the power that doesn't look like any kind of power I recognize. And, and then just a, a, a humble repentance that comes with all of that, whereby I think I'd forgotten some of that. I think I'd lost sight of that. And I think in the process of losing sight of the foolishness and the power and the strength, the wisdom of the cross, um, I began to buy into other narratives and other stories. And now, actually, I think I believe in those other narratives more than I believe in the only narrative that there is. Will you forgive me? And all we need to do is just ask the Holy Spirit again to search us and to know us, to see if there's any offensive way in us and to lead us in the way everlasting. And just to highlight and to show us where have we bought into other narratives, where have we bought into the way the world thinks, where have we bought and subscribed to the way um, the world perceives things, you know, and where we've lost the thread um, of the story. Where have we lost that thread of the story? How can we step back into the foolishness of the story of God and start living our lives again uh, by faith 
in a crucified Messiah. Why don't you stand?